You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. Your host is Dr. Janet Wright, Senior Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. Doubts have recently been raised about the efficacy of some common treatments for cardiovascular disease. What does the evidence suggest, and should we suspend the use of these treatments altogether? Our guest today is Dr. Robert Harrington, Director of the Duke Clinical Research Institute at Duke University Medical Center in Durham. Welcome, Dr. Harrington. Thank you, Dr. Wright. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. You know, there have been some surprising findings in recent studies about commonly used procedures and pretty well-accepted treatments for cardiovascular disease. I want you to tell us about some of the trials. And along the way, as we talk about these results, I'd like for you to also touch on the limitations in the trials. And then, obviously, we always want to return to what are the appropriate applications of the findings for the clinicians who are listening. Let's start with the closure trial. The closure trial was an interesting study. It was taking the issue of patent foramenal valley, so holes in the heart associated with stroke, and asking the relatively straightforward question is that now that we have devices that we can percutaneously close these holes, does that reduce the risk of stroke and transient ischemic attacks amongst a group of patients that have these holes, these patent foramenal valleys? Your intuition would say, well, of course, if you close the hole, that must be better for you than uh, leaving it open and just treating one with medicines. Well, fortunately, somebody did a randomized clinical trial of just over 900 or so patients. Now, they used a specific type of closure device, but nonetheless, it was a closure device with medical therapy against best medical therapy alone. So sort of a classic device versus no device on a background of medical therapy trial. And lo and behold, after studying 900-plus patients, it was observed that there was no difference between the two treatment arms in the occurrence of stroke, in the occurrence of TIA, or the composite thereof. But there was an increased risk of vascular complications and an increased risk of atrial fibrillation associated with use of the device. And so it raised the question, Janet, of not only did the device not seem to add to medical therapy in some ways, it was worse than medical therapy because you expose patients to the risk of a procedure that they wouldn't have with medical therapy alone. And Bob, what's your advice to folks based on the results of this one trial? Are there adjustments to the approach to this clinical situation? I think that there are adjustments to the approach that while these devices are available and they've been used in clinical practice, there are also ongoing clinical trials utilizing other devices. And my advice would be, rather than assuming that closing a PFO is beneficial, one should approach that with a great deal of skepticism. And if your patient is similar to the type of broadly representative patient that was in the closure study, one might think twice about closing the patent foramenal valley versus using medical therapy. So definitely stop, take pause, think about the whole issue of PFO, and don't just assume that closing the hole is better than leaving it open with medical therapy. 
That was a beautiful summary. And these investigators really did us all a great favor by picking a broader population of patients. This was not an extremely rarefied group. There is quite a bit of applicability of the studied population to the types of folks that practitioners are actually taking care of. And, you know, whenever you do these device trials, as you know, they're challenging because there is the assumption that doing something is better than not doing something. And there is an intuitiveness about, well, if I close the hole which I believe might be responsible for the stroke, that must by definition be a good thing. And here you really have to say, while intuition and experience might be beneficial, we really need to rely on more objective, quantitative evidence to make decisions. What was the SMART AV trial designed to investigate and share with our audience the findings? SMART AV was, as the name implies, was an attempt to add a level of intelligence to a procedure that's done frequently, uh, cardiac resynchronization therapy, to see if by adding a level of intelligence, patients would have better outcomes from cardiac resynchronization. A couple of things to keep in mind first. Cardiac resynchronization is a therapy which is now frequently applied to a group of patients with left ventricular dysfunction and heart failure symptoms. This is a, a therapy which has been shown now in randomized clinical trials to improve clinical outcomes and therefore it is a procedure which is fairly widely used amongst patients, as I said, with left ventricular dysfunction and various degrees of symptom status. Typically, we guide our synchronization therapy using either echo, so imaging the heart and trying to optimize the timing between the atria and the ventricle, the so-called AV delay, or just fixing the AV delay in sort of an average sort of way and assuming that patients will get the average sort of benefit from the therapy. Well, that's how we conventionally have used cardiac resynchronization and the concept of what is the timing interval between the A and the V. Somebody has come up with a technology to use more sophisticated programming that results in an AV delay that might be more optimal for that individual patient. Again, It sounds intuitively like this is probably better if we can individualize it for this group of patients, but it needs to be studied. Well, in fact, a group did a randomized clinical trial enrolling almost 1,000 patients and randomizing them to one of the two conventional means, meaning a fixed AV delay or an echo-optimized AV delay, and then a third experimental strategy using this smart AV delay. The primary endpoint was not a clinical endpoint, Janet, but was an intermediate endpoint. In this case, they used imaging of the left ventricle and measured left ventricular and systolic volume, a marker of heart function. And in fact, again, uh, as we had seen with the closure study, what was intuitive here, and the intuition would be that individualized programming would be better than the other two, in fact, it was not. That there was no difference amongst the three groups with regard to left ventricular and systolic volume. So no benefit to using the more sophisticated programming over the less sophisticated programming for the programming of uh, the AV delay in cardiac resynchronization. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD. It's the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright, and our guest today is Dr. Robert Harrington. He's director of the Duke Clinical Research Institute at Duke University Medical Center in Durham. We're talking about new evidence that questions the efficacy of some of the commonly applied treatments for cardiovascular disease. 
Bob, you were just going over the SMART uh, AV trial. Talk to us about what changes you would recommend or the takeaways for people that are practicing out there. I'll give you three takeaways. Uh, First off, this study by no means calls into question the benefits of cardiac resynchronization therapy. It instead addresses a technical issue around resynchronization therapy. So the first message is if you have patients with left ventricular dysfunction for whom you think that referral for consideration of cardiac resynchronization therapy should be considered, these data should by no means dissuade you from doing that. Secondly, if you are an electrophysiologist thinking about cardiac resynchronization therapy, so somebody who actually does the procedure, then you should take these data to heart and to say the fixed AV delay or echo-optimized AV delay is really the state of the art right now and that justification for a sophisticated algorithm to program the AV delay is not indicated. And finally, as we had with the closure study, these data should, you know, as with other data, make you take pause and say, okay, although intuition might favor one approach over another, let's make sure that we're typically falling back on evidence when we make clinical decisions. Talk to us about the study that looked at telemonitoring patients with CHF. Well, we've actually seen two studies, one out of the U.S. and one out of Germany, recently presented at the Heart Association meetings, which addressed this question in a randomized clinical trial method of trying to understand whether or not telemonitoring, so utilizing technology to help follow patients and provide feedback and provide reminders, is better than standard follow-up care. And in fact, in randomized clinical trials, once again, where our intuition might have been favoring the more intensive telemonitoring approach, that when we exposed our intuition to the rigors of a randomized clinical trial, we saw no advantage of the telemonitoring approach in the heart failure patient in these two studies, whether we're looking at all-cause mortality, readmission for heart failure, all-cause readmission. uh, It did not seem as though the added expense or the intensiveness of telemonitoring really helped these patients be managed better. And again, Janet, as with our other two examples from Closure and Smart AV, this goes against our intuition where more is probably better. But to me, raises the question not so much that more might not be better, but we just haven't figured out yet what more that is. Well, great. We're going to move on to one more trial. The Gravitas trial looked at doubling the dose of clopidogrel in patients who'd had a poor response to the drug after percutaneous coronary intervention. What can you tell us about the findings of Gravitas? Gravitas is a trial that many of us have been waiting for for several years now. And the observation goes something like this, that we know patients who have coronary stents put in benefit from dual antiplatelet therapy, meaning a combination of aspirin plus clopidogrel or an ADP blocker. We know that from randomized clinical trials. We also know that there were a group of patients who do not seem to have an optimal antiplatelet response to clopidogrel. And this has been, at least it's been postulated to be due to a variety of reasons, of one of which might be that some patients are genetically predisposed to not metabolize clopidogrel in a favorable way that would allow them to get the maximal antiplatelet effect. So we know that the drug applied in a population way is beneficial. We know that there are patients within that population who don't receive the full benefit. 
The next piece of evidence we have is that we know that in those patients in whom an incomplete platelet response is seen, that there is some evidence that by providing them a doubling of the dose of clopidogrel, in fact, that they get a better antiplatelet response. Okay, so now we have three pieces of the evidentiary chain here. The (laughs) next logical question is, if we double up the dose of clopidogrel, might we reduce some of the bad outcomes amongst that group of patients who don't seem to respond optimally to clopidogrel therapy after they've got their corner stent? So the Gravitas investigators did a randomized trial where they did something, I think, very simply. They took a group of patients who did not have optimal antiplatelet response using a bedside platelet function measurement. They then randomized that group of patients to receive what they would ordinarily order to receive this double dose of clopidogrel. And again, Janet, you would say that, well, my intuition is that they probably, the group that got the double dose, would do better. And in fact, they do do modestly better when you just look at platelet function. That group of patients does have more platelet inhibition than the group of patients with standard dose of clopidogrel. But that physiologic effect did not translate into clinical benefit. So there did not appear to be a role of double-dose clopidogrel in this group of patients who had a poor response as measured by this platelet function analyzer at the bedside. Based on what you've said, I'm predicting that you would not recommend any changes in current practice based on the results of the Gravitas trial. The question was, would doubling help? It doesn't appear to at least improve outcomes. So there, there does not be... seem to be enough evidence right now, Janet, that doubling the dose from 75 a day to 150 on a routine basis for those patients who have no platelet function is beneficial. It also raises the question about, should we be routinely testing people with regard to their platelet function. And I would say that right now, without a viable alternative for what else we should be doing, routine testing is probably not indicated unless it's in the context of further research. I would say, however, that there are some patients in whom testing might be beneficial, patients who have had multiple recurrent events, patients who have had a stent thrombosis event. Uh, Some of those patients, there probably is a niche role for platelet function testing and perhaps even some individualization of therapy. But even that has a fair bit of study left to do. No shortage of questions to ask and answers to seek. That usually means that we're making progress and, uh, (laughs) and still have questions open. We've been talking with Dr. Robert Harrington about the efficacy of some common cardiovascular treatments and learning that more is not necessarily better, that we better check the evidence and and build up the science. Bob, thank you so much for being our guest today. Janet, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.